Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Eruvin, daf Tzadi Zion, page. Um, our daf begins, of course it begins on the previous daf, just very briefly. Detanya motzit filin machnisin zug zug, achad ha'ish v'achad isha, achad chadashot v'achad yishanot, divi Rebbe Meir. We have a repetition, kind of, it's a break as opposed to the Mishnah, of the question of what happens when you have tefillin that are found, right? Found tefillin. And, you know, what are you supposed to do with them? We have Rabbi Mayer's opinion as presented in, the, in this Breita that says that uh, you bring them in even in pairs and you do it whether you're male or female, whether they are new or old. That is Rabbi Mayer's opinion. Rabbi Huda Oser B'chadashot Umatir B'yashanot Rabbi Huda disputes the question, the last point about new and old, and he says, if they're new, you don't bring them in, as we've already discussed, and we'll discuss more in a moment, and and you do, you would in fact bring in the old ones. Alma mar savar tarach inish, mar savar lo tarach inish. So the implication here, and this goes back to what we were discussing, I think now two days ago, right? I don't remember when, but this idea that yesterday, I guess, this idea that. Um, tefillin look like tefillin. Why would you ever think that there would be anything else? This was my question. So the Gemara here says that the implication is that people would, or the dispute here is whether people would bother to make an amulet that resembles tefillin, right? And so one holds that, in fact, of course people would, and the other holds that, of course, people would not, so that if you saw something that looked kind of like tefillin, then you would know that what you have there is tefillin, as opposed to the other opinion, which is Rebbe Mayer, right, which is that no, if if it if it looks like tefillin but isn't really tefillin, you know, isn't used tefillin, then you might think that you really have an amulet here. Uh, so the Gemara continues and says that there's the machloket kind of gets again. We've been doing this in the in the past several pages where the machloket gets a little bit more refined, right? And the way that you know that you have old tefillin or new tefillin becomes significant. How do you know you've got old tefillin? When you have straps, right, the black straps of the tefillin, and they are tied. They, new tefillin have straps, but they're not tied. Now, the formal tying of tefillin is really very complicated. Uh, if you don't have access to tefillin, I, you could find the picture online, right, pretty easily. Um, the knot in the back of the head is supposed to be shaped like a dalit. And the knot on the arm is supposed to be in the shape of a yud, right? So that's dalit and yud. And then on the box that goes on the head, it always has the letter shin, I think always, right? So then you have shin and dalit and yud, which spells out the word shadai or shakai, some people say. I guess I prefer to say that, right? Uh, that's the idea that that is the name of God, right? And so then you're wearing the name of God with with the knots, right? With the box and with the knots. So it's not just... Uh, you know, tie it in a knot for safety's sake. Um, and, and that's something very specific. And and it takes some skill or some effort anyway, right? So that if you have tefillin straps that are knotted, right, they're going to be knotted in a way that is very specifically tefillin, as opposed to once if they're not knotted, then I suppose the idea here is, or as the Gemara is presenting it, you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know if it's going to be an amulet. Once it's tied in the knot like the tefillin, then you know that what you have there is tefillin. Right, but the idea that you could make an amulet that would be sil- similar to tefillin, just not knotted, is 
you know, it's a distinct possibility. And in fact, it seems to be accepted here. Um, and then also we should note that this whole, whole issue, of course, is that if they're not knotted and at Shabbat, then you can't knot them to, to demonstrate that, lo, lo and behold, these are in fact tefillin because that is supposed to be a permanent knot. And tying a permanent knot on Shabbat is a problem of tying a permanent knot. So, so what we have here is kind of a conundrum specifically because they're not finished, but it's not clear whether they're supposed to be tefillin or not, again, according to the view that says, that you could have something that looks like tefillin but is not because it's an amulet. Which I think, again, brings up what you mentioned, you know, Anne, the other day, which is, like, there's something about this whole discussion on the DAP that I think just shows, like, the wearing of tefillin, who wore tefillin, what it looked like tefillin. It was still not so set. Like, there still were, like, a lot of questions about it. Which is also still very interesting, right? Because... I think, and I again, maybe we're wrong here, but I think of tefillin as such an old, an old Jewish thing, right? It goes back to again, halachah We say that the traditions that we know about tefillin were in place from Moshe. So, I don't have a good answer here, right? Why are they still talking about it? What are they figuring out that they don't already know from literally the midbar? You know, well, I, I don't know. It's not unbelievable to me that like I know today everybody sort of has their own to fill in but it kind of makes sense to me that that may not have always been the case I also would encourage everybody on the Hadron website Shuli Mishkin has a great article uh, just about sort of the history to fill in in the Mishnah and the Gemara which fills in um, a lot of pieces of this like how much was it actually worn what's the you know from an archaeological point of view what's the earliest pair of to fill in that they found um, and things like that, which actually happens to have been with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is very interesting. Um, right. And, and quite, quite old. So I, I would encourage back. everyone to read this article because it does fill in some gaps. But yes, it does seem from here that this was not a, today. We sort of use it as a line. Like, do you put to fill in on every day or you don't? And here it's not so clear who did or didn't and how it was done and what it looked like. It, it's just it's interesting to read. Right. Now, I'm going to hand this over to you in a moment. I just want to make one more observation, still on a Madalaf. Um, There's a discussion here, which is pretty intricate, and I'm going to not get into the, the nitty gritty of it, but about the question of, you know, I suppose if you, it begins with the idea that maybe you found a whole pile of chillin, right, which was one of the possibilities from the beginning. But here it, be, it starts talking about a situation of purchasing a large quantity of chillin, right? And then the question is, who are you buying from? And are you buy and and to me this question is interesting because on the one hand, don't you assume that you would buy from a scribe, right? And that's where you get tefillin. But perhaps these are tefillin that are accumulated from, you know, people who have given up their tefillin. Maybe they've died. Whatever it is, right? Meaning the idea that there are tefillin that are that you can acquire from somebody who's not an expert, and then you have to check them to make sure that they're kosher. And the question is, how many? How many? Tefillin, how many sets of tefillin do you have to check to make sure that what you've that you've found yourself a reliable um, seller, right? And so all of this again, like the specific details are all on the daf. I encourage you to look through it. This is you know so much um, easier going, I suppose we could say, than some of the more architectural dimensions of of the rest of the masechet. So I think that this is a fair thing to say. Go look it up. Go look it up. It's, it's there for the taking. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is that it becomes 
that this is a discussion, right? I, I don't know. You're Dana, you have villain wares in your family. How often are you buying more than right. one set of yeah, this whole, So again, this whole thing is so interesting because now when you go to buy it, it's, you know, you, you know, you ask around, you find a particular person, they're considered to be trustworthy. Also, I would have no, me nor my husband would have any point of reference to look at it and say, oh, this is a kosher pair. This is not a kosher pair. So again, this discussion, you know, leads me to believe sort of this, like something about Spillin was sort of getting uh, developed or becoming more mainstream as the Gemara and Mishnah were, de- say, as the Mishnah and Gemara were developing. Well, just on that point, I'll just make a sociological observation even today, right? Off the top of my head, when I'm talking about, when I'm reading this and I'm talking about kosher tzillin, to me, I'm thinking about the same way you check a mezuzot, right? Like, is the cloth, is the parchment still intact? Are the letters still whole? Things like that, meaning where, where a scribe can come and fix it. But I will tell you, there are sagas I have heard tell um, of where they checked old fillin, right? Like a, a great uncle died and they went through his things and, you know, he never really wore the fillin. And now they went to check them to make sure that they're kosher, meaning they're checking the scrub. Their, their goal is to check the cloth the same way I've just described. And they discovered that what's in those boxes so this I, happened, this actually happened to was a comic very close family member of mine who bought to fillin and then um, checked them uh while they were studying in Yeshiva in Israel, and they were full of comic books. And supposedly it was a very reputable place from the Lower East Side. So yeah, yeah. I guess it does. I guess it still happens. Guess, and right? I've heard this story also, and I don't think it's from the same people. So it seems, so people, there are people who are, will act fraudulently in the world, right? And fill in is something that needs to be checked the same way, like there are people who check and they're reliable to check. That doesn't mean that every purveyor of fill in is as good as we think they should be. Exactly. As ethical I'm as sure, we think I'm they sure be. that is true. Um, so I'm going to jump down to um, a couple of other things on this doc. Uh, the first, which again, I'm not going to read um, inside, but, you know, just to take note of this whole discussion about saving um, children, you know, like this case about the baby, when we read the Mishnah, you know, we read it already that it was like a child who was born in the field. But again, it's not so clear when you initially read that Mishnah that that's the case, that that interpretation is straight from the Gemara's reading of that Mishnah. Um, and also that they make a distinction here between Sakana, right? Is it Sakana because of a decree that you can't re- be caught wearing tefillin versus a Sakana of uh, Listim, right? That robbers or somebody would bother you. And our Mishnah is more talking about that case with the Listim, like, and that's why you would walk back before dark um, and, and come back later. So I, I think those are just two important points um, where I think it's just a great example where you sort of read a mission on the surface and it's not until the details of the Gemara fill it in that it just gives us a totally different read. Um, and so then this is very true of the last piece here, which is, you know, this case in the Mishnah where Rabbi Yehuda says after they go through the child, the baby, and after they go through the, um, you know, that if there's, uh, if there's danger, you know, that you would leave it. So all of that makes sense, or, you know, that there's a way of like sort of passing the object uh, around a chain of people. And the Rabbi Yehuda comes with this very weird case of the chavit, of a barrel, <laughs> right? Which sort of seems uh, a little out of place. And so the Gemara spends a lot of time trying to go through what exactly is this case? Because I think intuitively, right, even when we read that Mishnah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what do you mean? Like, the other cases made sense. But this, like, you have to carry a barrel. 
So, you know, I'll read the conclusion piece, but one thing that was brought up as one possibility is, is this concept of Rabbi Huda Potter Maimi Pnein She'ein Bahem Mamash, right? That maybe you're allowed to carry water, right? Remember one of the ideas was, was that maybe you like poured from barrel to barrel, but just the idea that Rabbi Yehuda holds that water would be exempt from any of these things of the tahum, right? Remember, we're talking about something like carrying something outside of the limit here specifically um, as well, because it doesn't have she'in bahem amash. Like it doesn't really have, you know, any um, uh, any substance. And again, the case that they're talking about here, right, Titanan, Rabbi Yehuda poter she'in bahem amash, is it, it's a case where a person adds flour for dough while somebody else adds the water, right? And so the chachamim would basically say that the, the dough, you know, can only be carried, you know, or taken out as far as, it, as, as the owners are permitted to. But Rabbi Yehuda, as a concept, exempts, you know, is pat, potered water, right? He exempts water because it doesn't have any substance, which makes sense on a certain level, right? Like it's nothing, but ultimately what's the conclusion of how they, anything you want to say about that, Anne, before I read, like how they ultimately read this Mishnah? No, I just thought it was an interesting concept. <laughs> no, no, I don't know don't keep I to say about it. It just was interesting. And also the fact that it never came up in Masachat Shabbat, like that it only comes up here for the first time. Right. That also was interesting. Too. I also noted that. Right. Yeah, it should have come up. I in also Shabbat. noted okay, that. But ultimately, yes. this is the conclusion right before the Mishnah, which this Mishnah will get to tomorrow. Rav Ashi Amar, Hacha bechabit de hefker askinan, umayin de hefker askinan. So Rav Ashi said this specific case of the Mishnah is where we're dealing with an ownerless barrel and ownerless water. So in other words, neither of these objects are tied to anybody's residence. So it's sort of in a way they're to homeless, right? They don't they they don't have a, a residence. Uman Amrulo, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nurihi, to Amar, Chefsi Hefker Konin Shvita. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, right, he's going to say no, that, that a Hefker object, an ownerless object, it just acquires its residence from where it's located on Shabbat. So in other words, it's 2,000 Amot are just wherever it is. It doesn't actually have to be owned by a person. In a way, it's, it's an entity unto itself, and you just count the two, that you count the Tachum from where it was found. Right. And so what's the meaning of this statement, right? That they said that it can't go farther than the legs of the Ba'alim. That it shouldn't go farther than the feet of the owners. Right. And again, it has no owner. So it means this, the Chavit and the water, right. Can't go farther than any other Kalim that have owners, right? So I think therefore what's he's saying is, is that it's not so much that it begets its, you know, that, so in other words, it can't be moved more than 2000 on moat, no matter what, like we're not gonna allow that because it's a Hefker Kli, somehow it was allowed to be moved more. Um, but it's again, one of these examples where it, it was clear to the Amorim, something about this case and the Mishnah did not make sense and the mental gymnastics involved to sort of hone in on a very, very particular case, you know, that it really meant this very narrow case uh, is, is, is pretty amazing to see how they come to that ultimately on the top. And they run through many permutations of what it could be. Yes, and I found following it to be like, okay, now I've got that on one finger. Now I'm going to try the next permutation, my next finger as I was going through it, right? Like, 
it's an interesting question. This, the whole thing of it is, I find interesting. The fact that they narrow it to that. Well, because again, because I think there's something about the premise of it. Like when you just read it, that doesn't sit well with them. So I think that's why they have to sort of they they do try to narrow it in a way. Right, and I think that the conclusion, I think that it's an easier. I think it's easier than the premise. I mean, I I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but that doesn't mean that till. This is again the the beauty and the challenge of the Gemara, right? Is that because we're seeing all of the permutations as they unfold, as they're figuring it out, so we're also going along with them, and we're not just getting to the bottom line, right? It's not a short handbook of halacha or something like that. So, so as they're as they're narrowing the case and getting it more specific, I can appreciate it, right? And then I can say, oh well, yes, this makes a good. This is a good landing spot, but yeah. Right, meaning as opposed to if they just no, gave us the bottom sure. line. Um, well, I guess. And then we'd say, why did they yeah, get there? No, How no, did they I, get right, there? But I just think seeing all the different ways that they could possibly explore what this case is, it, it's always interesting to see how the Gemara runs with a with a case. Indeed. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Uh, come sign up for our Seum if you haven't done so already. And thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hot Room website. Until tomorrow, go and